Good morning. And it is a good morning because we're together in the name of the Lord, and the Lord is always present. I'm excited to uh, take a look with you at Haman in the book of Esther. Haman is the guy we love to hate, for sure. And uh, during Purim, when the Jews celebrate what God did for his people in the book of Esther, they read the scroll, the Megillah of Esther. And whenever Haman is mentioned, everybody cheers because, you know, like, boo, you're going down. So you don't have to do that where you are this morning. But to introduce Haman, I want to begin at the beginning. And the beginning of Haman in the story of Esther is in chapter 3. I'd like to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 to us. Follow along. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told, him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Akashverosh. Haman is a picture of pride in the book of Esther. When we look at Haman, when we say the name Haman, we could substitute the word pride, and we'll see that more clearly as we go along. The thing that's striking about Haman that we appreciate in every episode of Haman in the book of Esther is that things are just really out of proportion with Haman. They're blown out of proportion. They're exaggerated beyond proportion. And we have a sense of proportion from the world around us, especially God's creation. It just brings to mind as we reflect upon it the notion of proportion, uh, function, and balance. We think of the, the seasons, uh, autumn, winter, spring, summer. Between the four seasons, a balance is maintained. There's day and night. There's the rhythm of daily life. There's even life 
and death. So proportion is that, that balance, that fit, that, that sense of things are in balance, not too, not too much, not too little, just right. Makes me think of the painter Dali, because he's a surrealist, but he takes things that are proportional, things that are natural, things that are to our eye and to our sense balanced, and he exaggerates and stretches things. It would be as if you had a nose that dragged on the ground like a tail. I mean, that just wouldn't do. It would be unfunctional to have a nose like that. And when we look at the life of Haman, things are not very well balanced, not proportionate. And we see that even in the passage that we read here. Jesus had something to say about proportion. It was uh, repeated in his teaching. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. He also said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's proportion there. There's balance there. Boy, what a world. It would be hard to imagine the world in which we live if we could fulfill those golden laws of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the disproportion, the out of proportion, out of whack nature of the fact that we don't love as we would have others love us. We do not treat as we would have others treat us. That's an indication of pride. Haman, things are out of proportion. But I don't want to be unfair to Haman. When we meet Haman, it's really rather surprising. We don't expect what we read in verse 3, that Haman is catapulted to the heights that he's elevated. He's second only to the king. We don't see it coming. It's a complete surprise. There's no rhyme or reason to it. In fact, there's no reason stated as to why Haman is elevated. We think, if we're fair, uh, we think, uh, what a lucky bum. We know what that's like. Or at least the world knows what it's like. When it looks at us, people born in America, we're a bunch of lucky bums. We live in the... In the land of the free, the land where fame and fortune are had. They wish they could have what we have. Sometimes, sometimes we just want so much more than the blessings that we already have. What we see in Haman is a man that is elevated, it seems, 
on no merit. There's no basis mentioned. And that is really the beginning of what irritates us about Haman. In fact, if we're wondering why he's elevated, we have to pay close attention to the passage. And you'll notice that the opening words of chapter 3, the opening words of verse 1, begin this way, after these things. Well, what are those things that this elevation follows? Well, it follows the verses that we read about Mordecai in verses 19 through 23. And there, Mordecai saves the king's life by foiling a plot to assassinate him. We're even told in verse 23, the closing of chapter 2, that the act of Mordecai saving the king is recorded in the state records. So it's official. And yet, we expect Mordecai to be elevated. We expect Mordecai to be blessed, to be awarded. But what we read at the beginning of chapter 3 is that Haman is elevated. What a contrast. Meritorious Mordecai goes unawarded. Haman, why? Why Haman? What are his merits? Haman is elevated to the highest seat, the highest position in the empire. He sits only a little beneath the king himself. And so what we begin to see with Haman is this undeserved merit and a desire in Haman for so much more because it becomes an element of Haman's life that he just never has enough. In fact, it is mentioned here that uh, the king requires people to bow to Haman, which is odd in that culture, in a traditional culture, in a culture that's hierarchical, where everybody naturally bows to one another. Jews would bow to dignitaries, to officers. So it was not uncommon. It was not a religious thing to not bow to somebody. It was a sign of respect and honor. And the fact that the king has to command the people to bow to Haman suggests that he must have been rather obnoxious I think we'll find that to be true. But Haman is all put out of sorts. In fact, we're told, as the English Standard Version puts it, he's filled with fury because Mordecai will not bow to him. Some of this has to do with Haman, who's constantly identified as the Agagite. And this goes back to an age-old rivalry, a vendetta between the Jews and the Amalekites. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, there Samuel requires Saul, the king, to eradicate the Amalekites. 
And Saul spares the king and the king of the Amalekites. His name uh, is Agah. And so Haman the Agagite is a reference to the fact that he's a descendant of the king and this age-old rivalry. And it is for this reason that Mordecai, a Jew, will not bow to a what we could call a mortal enemy. But Haman is all put out because one man will not bow to him. And that for him, triggers not just retaliation or humiliation of Mordecai. No, that's not enough for Haman. And here we see that exaggeration that's blown completely out of proportion. He wants to exterminate or wipe out. The word wipe out occurs 25 times in Esther. He wants to wipe out all the people of Mordecai And that would include, of course, Mordecai himself. And so it is that we begin to see, even here, the pride of Haman. We usually think of pride as a sense of superiority, but pride is often driven, maybe more often than not, driven by a sense of inferiority. Both focus on self. And that's really at the heart of pride. It is an absorption with self. It's an it's a undistracted focus. Everything is filtered through the premium focus on self. I know. I'm experienced in this. I really struggled with pride, although you would have never seen it, because I thought I was inferior. I felt inferior. I believed I was inferior, but I didn't think it was fair. I didn't think that's the way it should be. And boy, I had a drive to be better than the next guy, to be better than other people. And in many ways, that I've shared openly over the years that I used to have some terrible anger issues, really struggled with anger. I don't know how Shelley, my wife, put up with me for those uh, beginning years. It, it, was, it was rough on her because I was so touchy. Every little thing was offensive to me, or I took personally in a way that hurt my feelings or felt like a dig, not a help, elbow bump, you know, but a dig. Like you're not good enough, or you're not doing it right, or you should be doing it better. Those are the elements of pride that create an exaggerated view, not only of ourselves, but an exaggerated view of the world around us. Everything is magnified in terms of its importance when it comes into the sphere of who I am and my drive to be a better person, to be a person that I want to admire or have others admire. The funny thing about pride that I've found is that it's so all-encompassing for the person who's that absorbed is that I wouldn't enter into a relationship. I wouldn't enter into a job. I wouldn't enter into anything 
unless I thought it would make me feel good and make me feel good not only about myself, but make me feel in a way that others would feel good about me and think more highly of me. So a lot of qualities had to do with what other people admired, not for the intrinsic importance or worth of what I was doing or what I was actually doing when I was doing it. It was really not about the doing of it. It was about how it reflected on me and how it made more of who I am. Some of you might know a little about this. It can be very subtle, and sometimes we think it's so normal in our world. Our society is a prideful society. It doesn't look out of whack in our society because it's, it's displayed, it's paraded, it's, it's applauded, it's honored, it's defended. Everywhere we look, in all the things we read and watch, and come in contact with. It's really kind of the lifeblood of our society. It would do us all good to learn more about pride. And I can't think of anybody better equipped to teach us about pride than C.S. Lewis. I would recommend highly that if you haven't ever read Mere Christianity, it would be easy to obtain an inexpensive or used copy it would be worth it. But if you can obtain or pull one off your shelf, turn in mere Christianity to chapter 8, The Great Sin. That whole chapter is devoted to pride. Or grab a copy or in addition, read his, the screw tape letters. And letter 14 is devoted to pride. Reflect. Think about pride, its place in your life, and how it can sneak up on you or overtake you or even control you in ways that we don't always appreciate. Pride, as I said, warps proportion. It's an out-of-proportion focus on ourselves. Pride turns everything into a means to an end of getting respect, getting approval, and getting applause. That's why it's not enough for Haman to be second above all but the king. More than that, more than that position, more than anything he's doing, Haman wants respect, approval, and applause. And he'll do just about anything to get it. We may think pride is not a problem for us, but we can agree it was a problem for Haman. Haman, we'll see, was self-absorbed, he was never satisfied, and was easily offended. Haman can't see that his self-importance is way out of proportion. Everyone else can see it, but Haman can't. And the impact of his pride is upsetting. Not only will others perish at the feet of his self-importance, Haman himself will perish because pride comes before a fall. Pride ends in self-destruction. You may not see it, 
When you watch and observe another person's life, their star may be climbing or shooting, but eventually things burn out, and the end is not pretty. Every time you read the name Haman, you can mentally substitute the word pride. We looked at verses 1 through 6, and there we saw how easily pride, easily Haman is offended. The importance, his self-importance is so out of proportion. His pride is offended because one man refuses to bow. Like I, te- like I mentioned, bowing was instinctive in, the, in that Eastern culture. People did that out of respect. My son uh, spent uh, about a third of a year in Japan teaching English, and there they bow instinctively as a sign of respect to those who are elders, uh, those who are in offices of respect. And as I said, you can find occasions, enough occasions in the Old Testament where Jews would bow out of respect. It was not in any way considered robbing God of his glory or respect. So Mordecai's decision not to bow to Haman uh, isn't so much because Haman isn't God, it's because Haman is an Agagite, and uh, it really upsets Haman. Pride is competitive, and his anger is so bruised that he wants to wipe out everybody in Mordecai's race of people, the Jews. Pride is out of proportion, and when it is, any justification will do. And uh, Haman finds justification in this ancient vendetta to right what he thinks is a wrong. Another thing we see in Haman is he's never satisfied. In chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, he assembles all of his friends, his wife. Pride, of course, must have an audience. And there he recounts, this was following his first invitation and luncheon with the queen and the king. And there he begins to parade all of his achievements. In fact, we read in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 5 that he recounted the extent of his wealth, his large number of sons, every instance where the king honored him. And how the king had advanced him beyond all the officials and other courtiers. And beyond all that, in verse 12, said Haman, Queen Esther has invited only me to attend the dinner that she's giving for the king. And I've been invited by her for dinner tomorrow as well. And so by all this, He says, all this fails, fails to satisfy me. Literally, it is not enough. All this is not enough to satisfy me, he says, whenever I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
<laughs> Isn't that out of proportion? Isn't that preposterous? And yet we lead our lives like that a lot. We have so much, and yet every, we're, we're down in the dumps. We're defeated. We have a defeatist attitude. We're angered. We're upset. We're screaming at our televisions. We're typing away on Facebook or Instagram about this or that because something didn't go the way we think it should go. After reciting all that Haman recited, you would think he would have just said, I am the most grateful man in all the empire. I have so much to give thanks about, so much to be thankful for. But instead, he says, in the scales, it doesn't even have any weight. Mordecai tips the scales. As long as Mordecai's at the king's gate, I might as well have none of it. How pitiful is that? Publicly, he rehearses all those blessings and not a scintilla of thanksgiving. All about his pride. He wants others to be thankful for him. What a blessing Haman is. And yet he is not grateful. In Lewis's, uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, I mentioned chapter 8, The Great Sin. He says this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. As long as, long as Mordecai is in Haman's life, he can't claim to have more. That's how upsetting Mordecai is to Haman. He lacks a thankful heart. He has no eyes to see grace. Every source of his pride is a gift, and all he can see is not the gift, but Mordecai. And so in all out of proportion, he builds a gallows, 75 feet high. He wants to make a spectacle of Mordecai. He wants everyone to see Mordecai's downfall at his hands so that he is better than Mordecai because Mordecai is the one man in the empire that does not bow to Haman. How sad to be so fixated, so derailed by just one small thing. We need to check our pride when we're so easily upset and never satisfied. We also see in Haman that he's self-absorbed in chapter 6, verses 6 through 14. In verse 6, the king, of course, couldn't sleep, and so he asks an attendant to read from the state archives, the state records, and as the records are being read... The, the attendant comes to the text that has recorded what Mordecai did in foiling the plot to assassinate the king. And as the king hears this, he says, uh, what has been done for this man? What did I do to honor him? And the attendant says, uh, 
your majesty, you haven't done anything. And he says, uh, what should be done for the man that the king desires to honor? And he says, who's in the court right now? And the attendant says, uh, well, Haman's in the outer court. He says, have Haman come in here. And Haman enters the king's president, and he says, uh, he says, uh, Haman, I'm thinking about the man that I desire to honor. What, what do you think should be done for the man that I desire to honor? And Haman is flushed with pride. He thinks the king is thinking of him. And so Haman tells the king what Haman thinks should be done for him, done to honor him, done that would be deserving of his lofty glory. And he begins to tell the king, I think that uh, the person that the king wants to honor should be driven around the city in public, riding the king's horse, the horse that the king himself read, has ridden. And I think he should be crowned with a crown that the king himself has worn and wear a robe that the king himself has worn. And on and on he goes. Why? Because Haman thinks, you know what? I should be king. I'm deserving of these things. And after the king hears what, Mordec what Haman has prescribed for himself... The king says, voila, that is a splendid idea. Haman, I want you to do all of that for Mordecai. Oh, can you imagine what went through Haman's mind? How his heart must have failed at that moment. And so it is, Haman's thinking, the king must have me in mind when instead he has Mordecai. And here we have a huge contrast. You see, because after he parades Haman, uh, Mordecai all about the city, saying, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. He keeps crying out like that. And he's pulling Mordecai on the king's horse with his crown, his robe. And afterwards... We're told that Haman ran home with his face covered. And Mordecai went back to doing what he always did, sitting at the king's gate. There is a vivid picture of the difference between pride and humility. And so it is. Pride comes before a fall. And we see that. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Haman wants to be what he never can be. He wants to be king. And so, so it is that the only king in Haman's life, the only king in Haman's heart, the only king in Haman's mind is Haman. But Haman doesn't want to be Haman. Haman wants to be something else. He wants to be king, and yet he can't enthrone himself. 
That's the problem of pride. The only king in your life is yourself. And the king elevated Haman as high as anyone could go. There's just no higher place. But our pride makes us strive. We're never satisfied. And we just keep striving to be higher, to be more, to be better, to gain more approval, more applause, more acknowledgement, because we're never contented. We're never satisfied. No blessing, no gift is gift enough. These are the elements, the symptoms, the indications of pride. In each of Haman's episodes, he does what he thinks is best, as if he was king. And then he deceives the king so that the king will rubber stamp what Haman wants. But now, those actions, without the king's full appreciation of what Haman was doing, now it has suffered the great reversal. Because even though Haman has come to the king to get permission to hang Mordecai, he can't hang Mordecai now. And he can't go through with his pogrom, his uh, genocidal wipeout of the Jewish people, Mordecai's people, because Mordecai has been elevated and honored. There's a refrain, a theme in Scripture, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. This very truth is the story behind Esther, the story of Esther. The story of Esther bears witness God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. In Obadiah chapter 1 verses 3 through 4, very opening of the prophetic book, Obadiah utters a message from the Lord to an enemy. And he's speaking through the prophet. And he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And then God continues, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, I can bring you down, even from there, says the Lord. In Psalm 138.6, we read, Though the Lord is high, he regards, or he pays attention to, or he takes note of the lowly. But the haughty, that would be the arrogant or the prideful, God knows only from afar. Now, why is that? See, that's because the Lord is down among the lowly. His attention is on the lowly. The prideful, those who are so high, the Lord looks at them and they're a long way off because they're not where the Lord is. And the Lord is in humility. You know, what Haman wanted 
was something we all want. And that's to be honored by somebody who is honored, to be praised by someone who is praised. Haman wanted the king's praise, the, the king's honor, even the king's place, but he wanted he wanted to be praised. He wanted to be valued. He wanted someone above him to show him his worth. It's just, uh, as one man put it, uh, he, he was asking not so much for the wrong thing, but he was asking the wrong king. You see, our king is the Lord, and the huge problem of pride is that Pride dethrones God in our life, and we take the place of God. We sit on our own throne. And that puts us at odds with the God that we say we worship and that we say we serve. And sometimes we have so much knowledge of how the kingdom of God works, but we aren't really subjects of the kingdom. And... We profess to serve the king, but sometimes we're just playing politics in the king's kingdom, like Haman did, because what it's really all about is our own elevation, the, own, the centrality of our own life, the importance of our own life. If we lose ourselves because God fills our eyes with his presence, his place, his glory. We will be elevated. In Christ, who humbled himself and took the form of a slave, became obedient even unto death. In Christ, we are raised and elevated co-heirs with Christ. We experience that. We know the vitality and the power and the life of the risen Christ, not through knowing about it, but through experiencing his lordship in our lives. By following him in his footsteps, not by GPS, but by walking in the dust behind him. These things naturally humble us. They cause us to be principled in a way that allows us to stand not on the basis of feelings, but on the basis of faith and trust in him. We're going to sing Waymaker. In these difficult times, and they kind of sometimes sneak up on us, I know, it seems to exhaust, deplete, and drain us. But in the Lord, we find our strength. We find a fortress in Him. And his power, his life, is our vitality. Let's trust the Lord every time, every day.
but especially this day and this time and for such a time as this. We love you. We pray and we believe that we will be together again soon. Do not lose heart. And with that in mind, just want to say we love you. Big hug. Mwah. <laughs>